Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. Revelation chapter 2, we'll begin our reading in verse 12 as you look there or look on the screen and follow along. Men, don't forget this Wednesday we will be back and we will be here at 6 o'clock. We'll be looking at the church of Thyatira. I've enjoyed this business of getting to teach the guys and then come and preach the message here. There's always so much you could never get to all of it in one setting. We won't get to all of this today in two settings, but we've talked together already with the men. Um, We meet every Wednesday at 6, so we invite you to come. Had some young guys the last time. I'm talking about some guys like under 60. Yeah, kids. Uh, but we were glad to have you. And uh, so I hope we'll, you'll come back and be with us again. This is God's message to his church at Pergamum. In verse 12 of chapter 2 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, you may have Pergamos, that's just a different uh, gender of the word. Back in this day, words that you and I wouldn't think about being uh, uh, restricted to gender. In the Greek language, they were, and much like other languages as well. But so Pergamon, Pergamos, uh, just one's neuter, one's feminine, don't worry about it. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says, This, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. We do not know who he is. We know nothing about him. There are legends about his death, but most likely he was killed by the sword. The the Romans took his life. My witness, he says, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And I have a few things, or but I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We'll talk about him. Who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before The sons of Israel, that is the very same word Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. I've I've got a sermon illustration right here. But he says, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, that word offend is scandalizo. It's the same word as here. And it is a word that means the trigger in a trap, not the trap itself. But the trigger in the trap, what is it that triggers us sometimes? Is it hanging out with the wrong people? Is that why you misbehave? Is is having too much technology at your house? Is that why you uh, look at things you shouldn't possibly? Those are the things we have to get ahead of. Quit worrying so much about the trap. What is triggering the trap? What is getting you in trouble beforehand? This is the stumbling block, the same word. He says he put a stumbling block, a trigger before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, Verse 16, therefore repent. Or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. God bless the reading of your word. 
When Jesus walked this earth, he made a statement in John chapter 15, verse 19, that I think is rather profound, alarming, frightening, very significant. He says to us, as his followers, the world will hate you. And in a world where the whole essence of the gospel, it seems, has been reduced to inclusivity. You understand what I'm saying? Our world today sees the gospel as everybody's welcome. It's just a giant group hug, and no matter how you feel, what choices you make in life, if you believe things and live things that are contrary to the Word of God, who cares The gospel is all about us coming together and being together and and not excluding anyone. Now, that does not make a bit of sense in light of what Jesus said. He said, the world will hate you. Why? Not just because you get on everybody's nerves. Some have that gift. But he said, they will hate you because of me. I am the reason they will hate you. You know people furrow their brow and squint when you say that to them. Because in our world, it's almost like, especially in the more progressive uh, Christian circles, uh, nobody hates me. I I get along great with everybody and, and, and people that are in the world. Oh, I got friends that are this way and that way and whatever kind of way. And there's a lot of ways now. Uh, but but I, I got people involved in this, that, and the other. And, and, and we just get along great. And, and so I'm wondering, well, if Jesus said that the world will hate you, where's the hate? Now, I'm not... I don't have to look very far for it. I get it. And I know I have suffered very little, I mean, minutely incomparable to people like we read about in the New Testament and people like Amy Carmichael and and people like we speak of around here quite often. It's nothing to even compare. But but I have my haters and I I have to understand that I will always have them. As long as I try to follow what God's Word has to say, and as long as I love the Lord and love Him first, I can tell you I will have those who hate me. And so will you. And and here's the catch. It's not just because we love Jesus. It is because you love Him first. That's the whole problem with it. You've got lost family members. They don't care if you go to church. You think they care where you are this morning? Not a bit in the world. But when the family reunion came and you were late, and you're the one that brought potato salad because you had to be at church, that's what they hate. That's when it begins to get on their nerves, when they can't just... uh, uh, say, well, it's okay for you to be re- religious or Baptist or, or whatever it is they want to call it. They never seem to, to understand that it is a relationship with God that we are talking about. But I can tell you, just loving God will rarely get you bothered. But loving Him first, putting Him first in your life, it breeds hatred. Polycarp loved him, but Polycarp was killed because he loved him first. He said, I'll not burn incense to the emperor. I will not declare that Caesar is God. It may be a small thing, but I don't just love God. I love God first. And I love him far more than I do Caesar. So loving him first caused Polycarp his life. We can go back into the Old Testament and we can see Daniel. He didn't just love God. He loved God first. We can come toward the modern world, Eric Lydell who was a track star from Scotland, and and he didn't practice on Sunday because he said it was the Lord's Day. And and the event that he was to win, he didn't get to be involved in because he didn't do the heat races because they were held on the Lord's Day. And then, of course, you know, later that week on a Wednesday, he ran a race that he didn't usually run at all, and he won that one, which is all great. 
But he was ostracized in 1925, not because he loved God, but because he loved him first. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. He says, it will do you no good to seek it second. If you seek it second with all your heart, if you give it the best you have in second place, as long as as you, you got other priorities, but when you get a chance, buddy, you are there. When you have extra money and they needed it, church, you don't you don't mind giving. And if there's nothing to do that day, boy, we can expect your presence here. If that's where you are, Jesus says, don't bother seeking the kingdom at all. He said, seek the kingdom of God first. The church at Pergamos had a problem with compromise. The deception of compromise is this. Compromise is a, it, it's less overt defiance. It's, it's more about attitude. It's more about perspective. We use words like flexibility, open-mindedness is popular nowadays. Tolerance. Tolerance is a word that Standing alone means nothing, but we throw it around like a six-shooter that Christians, uh, are you tolerant? Well, if you don't tell me tolerant of what, I can't answer that question. It might be a yes or no question. It's not a yes or no answer because we can be tolerant, and we are in our churches sometimes, of things that we should not tolerate at all. So, Open mind is tolerance, gracious, even Christ-like are terms that we use sometimes when we are being in a compromising state, when we decide that we are going to blur the lines a little bit. And, and what happens is the toxic of compromise eventually neutralizes the real message of the church because we began to look like everybody else and we have nothing to offer that they don't and fitting in is such a it's such a priority nowadays I mean people give points for that oh man he could just get along with anybody Jesus couldn't a fight broke out almost everywhere he went we act like oh no Jesus could oh Jesus just went places and people just slobbered and kissed and loved and loved each other and just, boy, it was wonderful. You've never read the New Testament at all, have you? How could you possibly conclude that? It is nowhere even close to something like that. So let's take a look today at God's message to his church at Pergamum. And he's going to break it into two parts. One, he's going to offer his insight. And then secondly, he will offer them an invitation. Now, according to his insight, he says, you need to know that I know about your circumstances. This is a great blessing. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. By the way, let's just touch quickly. The word dwell here. There's a couple of words for it in the Greek. One means you're not going to be there very long. The other one means you have nowhere else to go. This one means you don't have anywhere else to go. I know we'd love to think, oh, yeah, but well, they'll go to heaven one day. That's not the point he's trying to make. He's trying to say you are absolutely surrounded by wickedness. You would have to try to imagine a world where paganism has influenced the school system and the health care system and the government and, and, and the revenue departments and all of that where, where everywhere you look there's paganism. That should not be hard for us to do. We see it everywhere. They had two real intense influences on them. One is imperialism. They had a temple there to the imperial cult. That means that they worshipped Caesar there in Pergamos. There was a temple there, and they were the first church to have one, a temple that was built to honor 
Caesar Augustus. He was the first emperor of the Roman Empire. And they believed that all of the emperors of the Roman Empire were deified, so they would worship them as if they were gods. Now, Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of Rome. So they had a name for him called Pontifex Maximus. It is Latin for bridge builder, and the Maximus is great bridge builder. What bridge did he build? Well, you remember in the Old Testament when we did some preaching there recently, we talked about the paganism and the anti-God attitude of the Babylonian Empire. And then when you get to the New Testament, when it opens up, the Roman Empire is going wide open. So the first emperor of the Roman Empire was considered the great bridge builder between the old paganism of Babylon. They didn't see it as paganism. They saw it as power and and glory and and the pinnacle of, of, of human achievement. And he built that bridge from Babylon over to the Roman Empire. Oh, the Pontifex Maximus. You know who else gets that title? The Pope does. Oh, yeah. Man, when the church and the world got together in the fourth century, I want to tell you, either the world was going to become more like the church or the church was going to become more like the world. I don't have to tell you which happened. The Pope is now called the Pontifex Maximus. He still is to this day. And the reason is, is he's considered the vicar of Christ, the one that represents or takes the place of our word vicarious death. Jesus took my place on the cross. The Pope is said to take the place of Christ, and he is the great bridge builder. The Pope and the Catholic Church that he operates is the bridge between humanity and God. That's heresy. That's heresy. Please don't come to me after church because you'll, you, you'll upset me, and I don't think I have any more of my medication. And tell me, well, they just use different words. It's, it's basically innocent. It's, it's not really a big, big, big thing. It's what, uh, unless you've really studied history for a long time, let's just you and I skip that argument because I'll do my best not to embarrass you, but I usually don't do very well at that. He is the Pontifex Maximus. The Catholic Church is seen as the bridge between man and God. I'm going to tell you, the bridge between man and God, just so we're clear, is God. Jesus Christ dying on that cross for my sinfulness. And I don't need anyone else to step in on my behalf. I have a relationship with God that I do not deserve because I have put my faith in the finished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, they had the imperial cult there. They also had an office there. We would call it like the county seat. You could go to trial there, and they had what we call ias gladi. I say we call it. I, I, like you use that this morning. Honey, hand me the ias gladi. Gladi was a sword. If you had to cut your breakfast with a sword, then your wife probably ought to work on her cooking. Ias gladi was the right of the sword. And if you had the right of the sword, you could take a person's life. You had the ability, you had the authority of the Roman Empire to do that. And they had that authority here. They, had, they were the county seat, basically, of Asia Minor. That's how we would look at it. They had the courthouse. They could put you on trial there, and they didn't have to send you anywhere to lop off your head. They could do it right there. It's why Jesus says when he writes to this church, he says, I have a sword too. And you need to fear that sword more than their sword. Matter of fact, Jesus even tells us one time in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul in hell for eternity. And that is God. 
He said, oh, they have a sword. But I have the sword of my mouth, and unless you repent, I'm bringing it with me. I'm bringing it with me, and I'm coming to see you. Had imperialism, and then they had paganism. We'll look at this one quickly. But whatever God you needed, they had in Pergamum. I'm telling you, the ancient ruins there are incredible. They had a temple or an altar to Zeus. If you were looking for power, there you go. Zeus was considered, get this, king of kings and lord of lords because he was over all of the other gods. So that was a couple of things that they would call him. So if you're really looking for power, Zeus might be your man. If philosophy is your thing, then they had the goddess Athena there. And they had a temple built to her. And she was supposedly uh, really wise and and had all that knowledge. And and so if you've kind of grown weary of us old uh, hicks that still believe the word of God and stuff like Jesus rose from the dead and that he was born of a virgin. If you've risen above all of that, Pergamos will suit you quite well. You can just go over there and celebrate your brains. Maybe it's pleasure you're looking for. They also had a temple to Dionysius there. He was the god of wine and orgies. And the orgies there in Pergamos would become so intense that they would drag some of them out dead. It was such a drunken frolic in those worship services they had where it was all about meeting their pleasures and sinfulness and sexual intercourse with temple harlots. It was so bad some of them would not survive it. Now if you're into philosophy, pleasure, power, how about produce? Maybe you want your garden blessed, your crops blessed. Well, don't worry. We have the goddess uh, Demeter. And she was the goddess of nature and good crops, and she made things grow. And if you're one of those who says, I don't go to church, I just worship God in nature. I just get out there, and and I listen to the birds sing, and and I see the beauty, and, 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 and I'm into all of that. I love, you know me, I love going out in the woods and, and seeing animals. bringing them home and and eating them. I'm just saying, though, if you're into that, they they had a God for you. If you're into... Physical health, well, you, you, got a God, oh, you got a God too. Asclepius, they had a temple there, a major temple to Asclepius. He was called the Sorter or the Savior because he was all about, that was the God of, of healing. And dig this, one of the ways they would heal you. I don't know why. Uh, you doctors here today, I know some of you haven't caught on to this. They would put you in a trance and let snakes crawl all over you. As a matter of fact, the sign of Asclepius is the pole with the serpent wrapped around it. That was, that's the sign of this pagan deity. You see it on ambulances all the time. Now, I, I will say this about that. If you put me in a trance because I had a sore back and could barely walk, and I woke up with snakes all over me, you would think he has been healed. How could he break the 100-yard dash record otherwise? Yeah, we're not going to be doing that. They had a medical university there in that very same time. They had a library that the only one in the world bigger was the one in Alexandria, Egypt. If you were all about learning and human knowledge, then they had it all for you. Now, here's what I'll say before we move on. We're we're monotheistic. I understand that. But sometimes Christians, when we start to compromise, we don't get us a bunch of different gods. We just take Jesus and kind of reformat him. That's an old word for some of you. And we make him into what we want him to be. 
Some people have turned him into a bank. Really. I see these guys on television and ladies, that they spell profit with just one P. You notice that? They claim that, boy, you do this, that, and the other, plant this seed, whatever, and you're going to get rich and all that. You can turn Jesus into a bank. Maybe you could call that the, the, the God of uh, the monetary deity. Uh, we don't have a lot of different gods, but we like to take the one we do have and make him into whatever we want. I'm just believing God that he is going to heal this rheumatism and and when I believe it and I come against it in prayer and 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 you agree, God's got to do it. That sounds like a scalpius. I'm going to tell you something. We don't create God. God created us. And we need to make sure we keep that straight. Because Paul looked dimly on those who worship creation rather than the creator, Romans 1. He knew their circumstances. We'll look through these others a little more quickly. He knew their conviction. He says in verse 13, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. You held fast to my name. You did not deny the faith. The most common word to describe Christians in the New Testament is the word holy. Hagias in the New Testament, uh, Kadesh in the Old Testament, the word holy. It does not mean religious. It means different. It means dissimilar. You are not like the rest of the world. So when you begin to fall in line with the rest of the world or fall in love with the rest of the world, just remember that the word that God used most to describe his people is we are a holy people and we are to be dissimilar from the world. Assimilating into the world gets you no points with God. And that foolish thinking that, well, you kind of got to get in there with the world and then you can win them to Jesus Christ. That never works. It never works. He says, I didn't tell you to mix and mingle. I called you to be holy. Holy. Different from the rest of the world. The temple was considered holy because it was different from all the other buildings. The Sabbath was a day that was holy because it was different from all the other days. God is supremely holy because he's totally different from anything else. And we as Christians are to be holy because we are to be dissimilar to the world around us. He knew their circumstances, their conviction. He said those are good things. And he says, also your courage. He said, I I noticed that too. In verse 13, in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, my witness, that word is martyr. We think of martyr today, the first thing that comes to mind is someone who dies for a cause. This word actually means witness. But so many witnesses of Christ died for witnessing for Christ the word became synonymous with one who dies for his or her faith. It happened so often. My martyr, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He said, oh yeah, they killed Antipas. He didn't fit in. He says, but hey, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to put a division between sometimes the dearest relationships you have. He says, think not that I came to bring peace. Jesus said this, but I came to bring a sword dividing the dearest relationships, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, the dearest people in our life. Sometimes we will live separate from them to some extent simply because of our faith in Jesus Christ. He knows their circumstances, conviction, courage. But number four, he says, I also know about your compromise. But I have a few things against you in verse 14 because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who kept teaching Balak. He was the king of Moab to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols 
and to commit acts of immorality. Now, we need to learn a little more about Balaam. I think most of us know that he was an equestrian. But other than that, with a very talented mule, by the way, or donkey. Come on Wednesday nights, we call him the King James Word. Yeah, we let our hair down then. (laughs) But old Balaam's got a donkey that talks. You remember that, but there's so much about Balaam that has nothing to do with a talking donkey. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was one of those who spelled prophet with one P. He He wasn't a false prophet because he told the truth, but he was a wicked prophet. And when the children of Israel were passing by Moab... The king of Moab, Balak, said, I, 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 if, I, if these people attack, I've already heard about these folks. I mean, they just walked around Jericho for a week and the walls fell. I'm not nearly as strong as they were. I, I don't know what's going to happen to me. So, man, uh, he said, I, I, I need to get ahead of this. So he hires this prophet and he says, Balaam, he said, I'll give you so much if you will curse them. So Balaam goes out to curse them, and I'm making the story very brief here. There's a lot more details to it. But he goes out to curse them, and every time he goes to curse them, God blesses them. And finally, Balak gets it. Man, you bless them, you curse them one more time, they're going to be the greatest nation on earth. Balaam was like they already are. And you will not defeat them. Those are the people of God. He said, but there is one thing you can do. Put the sword in a scabbard. Go down there with your hand out. Mingle. Get to know them. Listen to their story. Uh, Feed them. Must have been some Baptists among the Israelites who knew that worked. He said, feed them. They've been scrounging around on manna for a while. They'll love a good meal full of meat. And if it's offered to idols, that's okay too. Because you see, they serve a God that's got these rules that's supposed to separate them from everybody around them. And when they break those rules, the power of God leaves them. And you can defeat them. He said, oh, introduce them to some of the Moabite ladies. Yeah. Uh, You don't have to force them on them. You know, just relationships. Have a have a a date a date app, maybe, you know? Moabite babes one oh one. I don't I don't know what they would have called it. Apps were just coming out back then. He says, introduce them to a few gals. And that's exactly what Balak did. And they took the bait. They ate meat offered to idols, but they didn't stop there. They laid with these Moabite women. They had sexual encounters with them. And to let you know how sin has not changed in all these centuries, they got so brazen about it. This one Israelite came walking right by in front of Moses and everybody else and God and the whole camp with a woman, a foreigner, and went into his tent right in front of everybody just like, get you a load of this. And he went in there and he slept with her. And one of the high priest's sons, who was named Phineas, <laughs> he went in that tent with a spear and thank you, and drove it through both of them as they were lying there together. And it said that God had already started a plague. 28,000 were already dead. And when he did that, God stopped the plague because somebody finally had enough courage to stand up and say this trash is wrong he didn't send us here to make friends with the Moabites he says 
this has to stop. Well, because Balaam taught Balak how to tempt his people, God hated him so badly for that. In the New Testament, just quickly, we have what's called the way of Balaam in 2 Peter 2.15. That's called loving the wages of sin. He said that's the way of Balaam, loving the wages of sin. The era of Balaam is talked about in Jude chapter 11, or verse 11. Jude verse 11 is called selling one's soul for money. That was called one of the ways of Balaam. And now here in this chapter we have the doctrine of of Balaam, which is compromise. And, and it's not that you just have people that are teaching the teachings of Balaam and these false teachings. He says, he, he doesn't say that everybody in the church is following them. No, he says, you're just allowing them to be in your presence. You are allowing them to be here. That's the problem I have. You need to separate yourself from them. I'm going to tell you something that will blow your mind. We, we talk about, boy, there shouldn't be division in the church and all of that. And I think I know what most people mean by that. There shouldn't be division among true born-again believers. But I want to tell you, in some churches, there's not enough division. I, if Jehovah's Witnesses come join this church and they intend to hold to and teach what they believe, there'll be a division here. Will there not, elders? Amen. We'll lead the way. There'll be a division here. If we have a bunch of Mormons that come in and they want to hold to their teachings and disregard the Word of God, and they want to have some Bible studies at their house on Tuesday nights and teach Mormonism, there'll be a division here. Sometimes we need division in the church. He says, you are allowing them to be among you, and I'm not going to have it. He also says, I know about your corruption. He just says, you have two groups there, the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. Or the teaching of Balaam. In, in the Greek, Nico is I conquer and Laos is people. In the Hebrew, Baal or Baal is Lord and Am is people. So both of these words basically have the same meaning from two different languages. They are able to conquer the people through heresy. Now, let me say this before we move to our last point and close. If you teach heresy and you really are good at it, you can rule the people. You, you, you think about this. We, we got this nice building, preacher that used to look like Elvis, one that still does. We got air conditioning, got heat. Got technology, got lights, got great music. Love the worship team. Got all of that, and we're half full but at best this morning. Jim Jones got 900 people to drink poison and fall dead. How do you do that? Joel Osteen preaches every week to a stadium filled with people. How does he do that? Stephen Furtick's got one of the fastest growing churches in Charlotte. How does he do that? I'll tell you how they do it. And if you're so amazed at, oh, but they have such a big following. Well, I don't know. I bet they don't have people as faithful to their teaching as David Koresh had to his. Oh, if you know how to teach heresy just right. And, of course, as you know, Furtick and, and, and Joel Osteen, both, they're right dead smack in the middle. Uh, Joyce Myers, they're right in the middle of the Word of Faith movement. And it, oh, it sounds like they're a little more edgy or whatever. Listen to some of the things that, that he has to say 
about uh, homosexuality and sin and things like that. Listen to what he had to say. Listen to Furtick tell people that when Jesus Christ, uh, 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 he broke the law of God so he could save us. That's not true. It's heresy. It's heresy. It's incredible. Last of all, and I will, I'll close. His insight, his invitation. Two things about his invitation. One, he said, repent. This is my invitation. I'm telling you to repent. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Repent or else I am coming to you and I'm not taking my time. I am coming quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Oh, you think they have a sword? He said, I got a sword and it's called my word. And don't think that, oh, well, that just is some kind of symbolic thing. Friend, let me tell you something. When God created this world, you know how he did it? He did it with his word. He said in the Hebrew, it is like be and light was. That verse is really short in the Hebrew. Light be. Boom. Light was. Yeah. That's how he created everything. He spoke it into being. If he can speak a universe into being, I want to tell you, that's the big gun there, friend. His word is awesome. He said, it never comes back to me not having completed the task. It does not return void. It gets it done. <laughs> he said, you need to repent. This is what we would call an heiress imperative. Don't worry about all of that. But heiress just means I want it done now. And imperative means because I said so. He says, you need to repent. Oh, you may feel like you're doing great because the Balaamites, I mean, they really have a different background. And the Nicolaitans, I mean, they're different too. But, boy, we're just a mishmash. We're we just a rainbow of different beliefs and backgrounds and people. And, boy, we just come together and have this theological group hug. And, and, and everything is great. God says everything is not great. And if you don't separate yourself from these people, I will come, and I will come quickly. He says, repent. Repent. Second part of his invitation was one of grace. He said, he who has an ear, verse 17, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Do you know what that means? If you do, write a book. Because most people don't. We're not sure. Maybe it's referring to that bread he says that he told his disciples. He said, I have food that you know not of. But he described it. He said, it's doing the will of my Father. That's what sustains me. Maybe it's like that bread in John chapter 6. He that eats this bread is not like the manna your fathers ate in the wilderness and died. He that eats this bread will live forever. It could be all of those things. But here is the whole point that we can know for sure. He says, I will give you things that are eternal and that you cannot get on that earth. He says, and I will give him a white stone. We're not sure about that, but we do understand the second part and a new name written on the stone that no one knows but he who receives it. When you gave someone a new name, it was a sign of ownership. God owns me. I belong to him. So when I go to him in prayer, it's not to get him to do what I want. It's to help me to do whatever it is he wants. It's a whole different concept, isn't it? But he doesn't belong to me. I belong to him. I belong to him. And notice twice he says, and I will give. 
I will give. It's not something you earn. I love this, and I'll close with this thought today. I know some of you are going, you've been closing for an hour. That's just to keep you from leaving. In the Revelation, he uses the word new fairly often. If you've been around here very long, you know there's two words in the Greek for new. One is neos, and it means new like I got a new car. And you may have a new car, but cars have been around a long time. You just happen to have one that nobody's owned yet but you. And you and the bank now have it. There's another word for new, though, and it's kainos. And this is a new like we don't have in English. It's a new concerning nature. There's never been anything like it before. It's totally different. And would you believe that every single time the word new occurs in the Greek of the book of the Revelation, every time, it's kainos. So when he says in Revelation 3 there will be a new Jerusalem, a new city for God's people, that's for us. There will be a new city. It's not an old Jerusalem that's kind of been reworked, refurbished. There won't be any bondo in the new Jerusalem. It's brand new. It's new like you've never, it's never been a city like that before. He says, I'm going to give you a new song. Man, we're going to get to sing a new song, and it will be so new. It's unlike any song we've ever sung before in Revelation 5. And in Revelation 21, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Not this earth kind of refabbed, reshaped, and redone. He said, no, I'm going to have an earth like you have never imagined in your life. One like has never existed. And then in Revelation 21, I love this. He said, I will make all things new. Man. You might have seen me about halfway through the message today. I almost fell. Had a little bobble there. My knee on this side once in a while, it'll kind of lock, and I have to unlock it. I got a whole bunch of stuff I have to unlock. I put a suitcase in the truck the other day. You'd have thought I picked a truck up. My back has hurt me for a week. Oh, man. He's going to make all things new, and I don't tell you... I, yeah, my back and my old knee, it'll be good to, to get those divine replacements, you know, whatever they're like. That'll be wonderful. <laughs> but I'll be so glad. I don't have to hug you, brother. I don't mind hugging you. But I don't have to try to comfort my brother David. Because he won't lose any children up there. It will all be new up there. George and Kathy, you'll have Kate and you won't ever have to tell her bye. Beth, you'll see your sister and get to be with her forever. It'll all be new. I can't wait. I hate doing funerals. Really? What are you going to say? And the more I know about humanity and the pain that we suffer, the less I know to say. But he says, I'll make all things new. Cornerstone, we need to be careful not to compromise. It won't feel like that we are venturing off the path. It won't. 
It'll feel like we're being inclusive. It'll feel like that we've come out of the dark ages. People will quit calling us bigots. People will say we're enlightened, we're progressive, we're, what's the word? Oh, yeah, woke. And it'll feel good. It will. It'll feel good. It'll feel good. To, 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 as a matter of fact, that feeling of, of being inclusive, when people tell you, oh, I got folks in my life that I love dearly, and they're like this and like that, and they're different than me and all of that, and oh, Preacher Mike, he would condemn them or whatever. You need to quit worrying about Preacher Mike. Look at what God's Word has to say. But a lot of people can't afford to do that. They can't stand up and tell people the truth. Even the people they love, they're going to let them die and go to hell. You know why? Because they love the feeling of feeling like I'm inclusive more than they love the person they're talking to. So they're telling somebody, you can swim, jump. And they're going to die. They're going to die. Oh, I wouldn't want to embarrass them, though. That's not for them. That's for you. That's for you. Because feeling like, oh, I'm not a bigot. That is the drug of the century. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for your word. It's so powerful. It's so reassuring, God. And I pray now, Father, that you would help us, Lord. Help us, God. When that hour comes upon us, and we know that it will, we know that it has, where we're tempted, Lord, to blur the lines. God, where we take that which is truth, and Lord, we begin to transform it into what feels good. God, when we sacrifice truth for peace, it seems so admirable, Lord. We might not catch it. We might not realize what we've done. When we begin to reshape you, God, into something other than who you are, when we create you in our mind, into our image. God, it's so subtle. I pray you'd help us. Help us as elders, as pastors, as shepherds, God. We are to care for and protect the flock. Help us to be wise as serpents in that endeavor, God. Lord, we ask you to help us now. Thank you, Father, for your word. Oh, praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at servantsway.com or email us at office at servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.